Podcast with your host, Nick Jaworski. We bring you the business of recovery because those struggling with addiction need you to be here tomorrow as well as today. Thank you for joining me here on the Recovery Executive Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Jaworski, owner of Circle Social Inc., a strategic marketing consulting firm for behavioral health and addiction treatment. Today, we're speaking with Gary Larsonaire. He is the former CEO of Valley Behavioral Health and was instrumental in its turnaround. And he also has a very interesting new project he'll fill you in on. But before we speak with him, I want to hear from our sponsors, Track 9, Track 9 Informatics is a data-driven approach to substance use disorder and mental health treatment. By assessing nine pathology and resilience factors that have been scientifically shown to be most critical to client success each week, Track 9 identifies which clinicians excel at treating which client symptoms, provides facility-specific clinical outcome analytics compared to national averages, and learns your facility-specific predictors of treatment success or failure, all of which help your program improve client outcomes, support payer negotiations, and reduce AMAs. To get a free consultation on how this data-driven approach can improve your program, call 833-998-7229 or email contact at track9.com. Track9 is hands down one of the best uh, outcome tracking tools currently on the market. I highly recommend you checking them out. So again, we're speaking with Gary today. I'm very excited to have him on. Gary is someone that I really identify well with. He has a lot of experience in turnarounds in the behavioral health space in particular. And like me, he actually enjoys it. (laughs) So he goes in and likes the puzzle, likes the challenge. And that's always been one of the interesting features of a turnaround or strategic growth initiative um, in my own consulting experience. So it's nice to be speaking with someone that has similar passions. We take a look at the do's and don'ts of what to do when you are looking at either a turnaround or a growth strategy in behavioral health and addiction treatment. As we all know, it's not easy, right? There are multiple balls that we are juggling at all times, and it's very hard to know which move is the right one to make. Oftentimes, there's no clear answer. We can use as much data as we have. We can bring in people like myself or Gary that has a lot of experience, or we can rely on our own experience from a past history in the field, but there are still many challenges that need to be faced. And so we take a look at what some of the common mistakes are, what some of the common solutions are, what to be looking at from a KPI standpoint, as well as patient satisfaction, stakeholder satisfaction, employee satisfaction, clinical finance, marketing, et cetera. Um, So with that, let's jump in and listen to what Gary has to say. Hey, Gary, really appreciate you taking the time to come on here. Uh, Do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself and you recently left Valley Behavioral, so maybe some background there and then your new initiatives? Absolutely. Um, You know, I've been in this field uh, about 30 years now, started out as a caseworker one at a state hospital. Uh, And I've worked nearly every position, it seems like in every department that a community health practice can possibly think up. Um, It's been uh, a thrilling ride. I started out in uh, West Texas, rural West Texas, doing uh, assertive outreach and trying to keep people out of state hospital and move people out of state hospital and avoid institutionalization. I did a lot of border work for years. Uh, I was on uh, the rural border between Mexico and Texas, um, doing a lot of uh, international work there, um, cross-border work. And then almost 10 years in El Paso, Texas, uh, and then another almost 10 years in 
in uh, Salt Lake City at, at Valley Behavioral Health. Um, CEO at both uh, uh, El Paso and Valley Behavioral Health. Uh, the entire time recruited in place there. Um, this act of my uh, career then, uh, I'd always intended on creating my own company um, to be able to share the information that I had uh, learned and garnered during these very intense turnarounds uh, that I had intentionally um, taken on as a service to the industry, the system, the communities that require and need the services that we all deliver. Uh, and also for my colleagues that were struggling with super complex environments and trying to deliver the highest quality care they could in their areas. So uh, it's been a very rewarding journey, a very demanding and rigorous journey, um, one that I wouldn't take back for a minute. And uh, I'm excited to be embarking on this next uh, project. Etia is the, the name of my new company, and uh, it's spelled I-T-Y-A. And at the top of the A, it has what's called a carrot. Uh, which is an accent mark, and the carrot represents. In uh, proofreading, you probably throughout school, your teachers used it where they put in a, a new word or added a word or, or a suggestion for a particular sentence that they're proofreading. And, and that's pretty much what uh, Project ITIA is all about, is, is going in and looking at existing workflows and amending them and making recommendations, creating workflows where necessary, uh, using AI, and I've got partners in, in, that have very, very sophisticated technology that uh, only uh, currently is available to the largest corporations in the United States. And I have exclusive agreements with them uh, for small and medium practices, and uh, we're, we're developing um, really uh, amazing products to leverage uh, smaller practices so that we can do very sophisticated uh, comparative benchmarking um, and work with other services uh, to ensure that the AI is producing the highest level quality of care that can be produced in today's environment, research-based protocols, um, so that our smaller providers can, can still remain smaller, more intimate providers in the community while also uh, having access to the same high-level, sophisticated um, computer technology that uh, their larger uh, providers in the areas also have access to. You mentioned the turnarounds that you've been a part of most recently, Valley Behavioral, and that's what I've enjoyed about uh, our previous conversations is similar experience in that regard. When you go into a turnaround, what are some of the major causes that you've seen that end up putting the provider in that position in the first place where they need to change things and improve? Yeah. The way I've organized, uh, the way I've looked at the, the lens of the super complex uh, social services, psychiatric, medical, uh, stakeholder um, mix of, of priorities that any community system has uh, to engage to be successful, I divide it into four areas that I call quadrants, um, clinical outcomes, customer stakeholder satisfaction, um, financial performance, and regulatory compliance. And usually... Uh, most definitely, the the challenges of the firms that I work with, the practices that I work with, either have one, two, three, or all four areas of significant challenge. And although financial uh, difficulties can uh, certainly uh, dissolve a practice um, more quickly than the others, um, every single quadrant is essential for uh, an effective practice to continue thriving in a sustainable fashion. 
So uh, compliance is just as important uh, as customer satisfaction, employee engagement, and the culture, and, and, and compliance is just as important as the financial performance and clinical outcomes. So um, I take a very balanced approach, but typically um, there is a one quadrant area, and a lot of times uh, the neglected quadrant or quadrants uh, tend to be a blind spot for the management team. Maybe they don't have a whole lot of strength and experience and depth in a particular quadrant, one or two, and they need a little bit of education and training uh, and support to get up to speed in that. You know, a lot of times CEOs come up through the ranks. They either come up through the clinical quadrant or they come up through the financial quadrant, um, and and maybe they've got a blind spot in the other areas and they need some assistance and to make sure they've got proper placement and executive coaching, and that's what I'm there to deliver. So you mentioned these different quadrants, and I think I've seen a lot of what you're talking about in terms of that blindness sometimes. So some recent conversations I've had around um, client satisfaction, right? If you look at especially the behavioral health space, you're dealing with a lot of Medicaid, a lot of Medicare. There's a lot of challenges dealing with those patients coming in, especially around satisfaction, particularly because sometimes it's short-term stays, right? You're just doing stabilization, et cetera. So you look at like average online reviews and a lot of these facilities are like twos, you know, sometimes mm. threes. And when you mm-hmm. talk to the CEOs, their response is usually a shrug of the shoulders. Well, we have a difficult population. Well, everyone is like this. So, you know, we're no different. You know, what's your response to that? Well, it's it's a certainly a valid issue. Uh, you know, you, you get onto the online reviews and a lot of the folks that come to us, sometimes they've been maybe compelled to come to us by uh, by law enforcement or by the judicial system. Um, and maybe they're there at the urging of family members. And so uh, that can create an initial difficulty. They're looking for prompt access. They're looking for, you know, they're, they feel vulnerable. Um, and so they want uh, to be treated in a particular way. I've used various softwares, uh, the software systems and platforms. I've I found that Pulse for Good is is a very effective uh, approach to doing both online evaluations and uh, capturing uh, content. Um, I and fully intend to be incorporating and partnering with Pulse for Good uh, down the road uh, so that we can offer our uh, clients a you know really strong technology platform to begin collecting information about what we could do better, how we can make things more streamlined and a better experience for, for clients. So a lot, of the, a lot of the rules that we have to engage in with the payers sort of forces us to do things that annoy our patients as well, filling out forms excessively, writing their names six or seven times during an intake. Uh, we were able to resolve that by using QR codes um, and scanning. Uh, most people have technology, even uh, some of the indigent clients, most of the indigent clients that we have, have do have access to some type of phone. We also have, uh, we can offer uh, tablets for those that don't, um, but we can we can scan um, certain things into the QR codes and not have to have people fill up the same things over and over again or go through multiple intakes and assessment processes that'll really compel people to relive trauma um, and to have to tell their story so repeatedly that they almost become sort of annoyed and numb with the, with the providers. So there, there are lots of areas where we can improve and uh, they seem to be minor improvements, but over time, if you if you make 10 or 12 or 20 uh, minor improvements to your intake workflow and your ongoing processing, billing and 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 support to the patient, now a lot of times we can we found that we can move the needle um, at Valley. When I left, and a lot of times people would argue too that there's there's a there's a difficult balance when you're trying to arrive at high levels employee uh, engagement and retention, and also at the same time. 
maintaining the same high level of engagement and satisfaction with customers. Uh, and and I've heard people make you know seemingly compelling arguments that it's basically always a trade-off that you're sort of having to take sides. But uh, through the use of proper platforms and technology, AI uh, platforms that we use for uh, employee engagement routinely have produced amazing results and have shaped management's behavior and structure in such ways that uh, Valley reached a top 25% designation in the healthcare sector during uh, the early stages of the pandemic uh, and all throughout the pandemic, we were able to connect with the employees and make sure that their needs were met, their emotional needs, their uh, feelings of anxiety were were addressed. We, we created, we went well beyond EAP and, and had on-site counselors available all the time to our practitioners who might need support. Um, and we also had customer satisfaction scores on a five-scale um, one to five, we were running usually between four, five and four, seven. So I, I believe we've been able to find that balance, but it has taken a long time in my career to balance those two things, to be honest with you, and also make sure that we're doing so while collecting our co-pays and making sure that there's patient accountability. That makes a lot of sense. You know, I think in my experience, especially with behavioral health, and it's not uncommon to behavioral health. I see it in hospitals and healthcare too, but there is a passivity and an inertia, right? That I have seen traditionally stem from a lack of a need to, to really focus on some of these metrics like patient experience for a long time, especially as a behavioral health provider, when you're dealing with Medicaid or Medicare, there was such a high volume of patients that regardless of how you operated, you know, you were one of the only providers, if not the only provider in the area. So everyone had to come to you, whether they liked it or not. And that generated almost a, a sense of, uh, you know, I don't, I don't want to say entitlement, but there was just a lack of drive to change. And so now it's different, right? If I go into Houston, if I go into Phoenix, if I ever go into Columbus, Ohio, you've got four or five acute psych facilities like in those cities and this competition now, right? And so I, I think it's been a bit of a wake-up call, but I still see that old mentality where there's a shrugging of the shoulders. It's like, well, you know, we've been profitable. Why change? Which I think dovetails into the eventual need for a turnaround. You know, your comments on that? <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. It creates an environment that's... Uh... Uh, that creates a, an environment that's a heavy need for turnaround consulting because a lot of times the the, the, the gradual drift downward uh, and then the transition into crisis is is not really an alarm that goes off. It's one that people sort of just gradually understand the, the severity and the gravity of the threats that are facing the practice and their relative market share and their shrinking margins. Um, and then that's when they pick up the call, pick up the phone and call me. Uh, I wish I got to say, I wish my my clients would pick up the phone and call me about six to 12 months before they do, <laughs> sure. because uh, there's a lot of damage that can happen in those uh, and a lot of corrective action and damage aversion that we can we can do. Um, I'm working with a practice right now that um, is in the middle of an EMR conversion. And, you know, I, we, we're going to we'll get through it and, and uh, we're going to get through it. And the practice is going to do well and we'll, we'll, you know, thrive in the days following. But there's been a lot of struggle and there's been a lot of cash burn as a result of it um, and patient uh, dissatisfaction and disruption and as well as employee anxiety and learning curve, et cetera. You know, we'll, we'll deal with all of that. Had we been here 12 months ago, I think we could have avoided a lot of pain and suffering. Practice isn't going to uh, fail, uh, but uh, I think we could have avoided a lot of stress and strain had we uh, just gone in and done a little check on the 
implementation plan, done a little overview, you know, I've done three electronic health record launches at this point in my career. I know pretty much how dreadful they are and how necessary they are. Um, but, you know, and it's not just behavioral health. You can Google failed EMR conversions. and <laughs> You've got the big guys out there. You know, Epic's had some struggles. You, you've got, you know, big hospital systems that have had some struggles uh, uh, that have been, you know, existential, that have been true threats to even the hospital systems and uh, required them to use extensive reserves. So it's it's not uh, it's not a it's not a game. It's not a video game. It's very important. Uh, to make sure that you're tracking key variables and you've got key project management uh, principles that are at place and accountability. And, and that's what we, that's the market that we thrive in. That's the area, that's the space that that I basically made all of my decisions in and, and am well-versed in and can certainly coach and make sure that the practice is protected and continues to deliver those valuable services to the community. You know, in terms of competition, I always thought that behavioral health and addiction services were a victim um, of not having enough competition because the competition, you know, if you remember when you, when you were younger and I, I don't want to date myself too much, but I think before the, the, the bells were broken up into more smaller units where we have competitive, you know, long distance carriers and all that. I think the biggest intervention I remember was, you know, 20 foot cord my mom would walk around the house with and swing it over our heads when she uh, needed to go from one room to another. And we thought that was pretty wild technology back then. Uh, I remember when, you know, phone calls, phones were hardwired into the wall and you couldn't just pick them up and move them from room to room until we got those innovative plastic clips that you put in the wall. Those were not super innovative technologies. And I think a lot of that had to do with the monopoly of the phone systems back then and the phone configuration. We broke that up, introduced uh, competition and look what we've got now. I mean, who would have ever thought we would have, you know, these massive supercomputers in our hands all day long. It's remarkable. And so I think behavioral health and healthcare in general has suffered uh, from a lack of competition in many areas. And, and I know it can be threatening and frightening, but at the same time, I think it's necessary to, to push for intervention, uh, for, for innovation and to, to ensure that, that the best practices out there are incorporated uniformly across all fields to avoid obsolescence. Yeah. Yeah, I think that there is a lot of complacence in behavioral health and healthcare in general, you know, and people tend not to reach out till it's too late. I mean, we've had providers call us where they've got one and a half to two months of cash reserves left, right? And then they're going to go out of business. I'm like, well, Jesus, this is going to be a nightmare for everybody, right? Because yeah, right? you yeah. just have to cut costs so drastically just to survive that you get down to the bone to the point where it's questionable if you're going to be able to make it, right? Yeah, when I got to Valley, you know, we had uh, we were we were right around an eighty-five million dollar top line revenue uh, system, but we had lost such a critical contract. Um, I took us down to forty-five million. Oh, wow! Um, in less than eighteen months. Wow! And and then rebuilt the company back up to its eighty eighty-five million dollar range now with other forms of business. I didn't replace, I, re, I replaced the forms of business. I didn't bring them back because I wanted to make sure that the company was fully diversified and no longer in that vulnerable state of losing one major contract and being vulnerable. I mean, practice diversification. I mean, a lot is, a, it's something that we don't talk about very much, but if you've got only one or two major payers that are accounting for better than half of your revenues, you're vulnerable. I yes. mean, you're, you know, because if you lose any one of those, you know, I tell people all the time, if you've got a commercial aircraft, you know, washing system that you go out and you spray down jet airplanes, but your only contract is with FedEx, 
Well, if FedEx ever decides they want to go and compete, you don't have a company anymore. You just have a lot of equipment. And so, you know, you need to go out and make sure that you, you're constantly renegotiating commercial contracts and making sure that you're, you're looking at your revenues to ensure that, okay, if one of these goes away, do we have any other lines that can support this company? And to what extent would, would there be damage if we were to uh, lose one of these key contracts? A lot of the contracts that these centers have or some of the centers have or are legacy governmental type contracts and they've come to know them and understand them and become like you said complacent um and and it's sometimes the learning curve of moving into the commercial market's a little bit intimidating you know for for valley behavioral health there were they the, they had two methods of payment uh in the computer system um and one was medicaid local and one was was indigent and that was it so you would ha- so so you would have you know, Blue Cross clients coming in the door and they would put them as indigent because the system wasn't configured to and we didn't have contracts to build Blue Cross anyway. <laughs> so they just learned through learned helplessness and denials that it was too complicated to try to build third party payers. And the indigent funds were there. The Medicaid money would cover the rest. And so the balance, the budget sort of balanced in aggregate. And that allowed people to just keep going on without really coming back and questioning the incrementals, the the, the more minute the details of the business models to say, wait a minute, what what is happening over in these areas? Why are we not accessing these other other types of revenue? So then, you know, you have a, a, I would say, you know, if Medicaid sneezes, we catch, you know, a deadly cold, not just a cold, but a deadly cold. And that cannot happen. So, uh, you know, now Valley has, uh, as you know, almost as many commercial clinics as it has Medicaid clinics and it's multi-state. So it's not only got its straws, uh, if you will, it's financial market straws pushed out into other states to protect it from local politics. It also has it diversified across commercial carriers, not just one big commercial carrier, but multiple commercial carriers to ensure that any disruption in the system uh, can be accommodated. The other thing is, too, is when you sign a lot of commercial contracts, you're going to do better when people have insurance, which means when when the economy is really strong, you're going to have a lot more commercial clients. But but when the economy tanks, they're going to lose. You're going to drop on the commercial side and your Medicaid side is going to pick up. So it provides you with a with a with a two stepped approach, if you will, to make sure that your revenues are diversified and can carry you through tough economic times as well as great economic times. The, the, the biggest challenge, I think, with, with moving some of our practices into a more diverse environment into the commercial market is our lack of understanding of branding. Um, we, you know, the, demographic, uh, the demographics of the general commercial market and their needs for addiction services and, and psychiatric care and, and all that are, 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 are identical to, to the, the Medicaid and even the homeless markets, their conditions, their diagnostics, their, their, their symptoms are all, their challenges are all the same. The illness is the same. Um, but the way you can communicate with them to get to resonate with them, to get them to engage and be, and be uh, an active member of treatment and feel like that they belong in your practice, there's going to be some different, different branding styles. Um, and we recognized that in the first couple of years uh, at Valley when we tried to diversify into commercial markets and had a heavy commercial push in our Medicaid markets. And what we found is that, you know, quite frankly, the demographics didn't want to sit in the same waiting room together. Uh, the, the gentleman with, with a teenage girl who was having difficulty in school didn't want to sit in the same lobby as the person who had just been released from incarceration and needed to meet with uh, the psychiatrist as part of a court mandate. And so we would lose the commercial 
they would check into the to the front desk and then get up and leave because they didn't feel comfortable. So we had to make some changes to the branding, to the way the waiting rooms were configured, to the workflows to make sure that the demographics felt comfortable so that we could get them the treatment that they needed. Now, once they got back into the room, we didn't give them any different types of treatment. They received the same types of therapy and medications, uh, but the brand experience was such that they felt more comfortable coming in. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned both those things. I mean, there's two points you really uh, honed in on that I think are important. The one was the mention that you had of, you know, billing Blue Cross Blue Shield as indigent, right? I see that so often, not the exact situation, but the shrugging of shoulders in the sense that, hey, we're profitable and we're making money, so who cares? I see that so often. It just blows me away. Because then they get into exactly what you're talking about, these situations where they suddenly don't have any cash reserves, where things are failing, and then they need to pay a whole bunch of money to, for something to turn well, around. Well, it's, it's, it's an excellent point, and it's, and it's unfair, right? It's unfair to the payers that are shouldering the burden for your business lines that aren't paying, you aren't seeking payment from. So you're, you're cost-shifting unfairly into other payers, which would even actually be a regulatory compliance issue if they dug deeply enough and, and saw that you're cost-shifting commercial costs into the federal system right. uh, or into the, the county, federal, state, federal system. That would be a compliance challenge, I believe, and one that would be legit to raise for somebody. The other thing is, too, is if you're not accessing all the reimbursements that are available to you as a provider, and then you're out there trying to do fundraising, you're taking fundraising away from companies and or not-for-profits that have no other way. There's no billing stream for them that's an alternative. They only have donations to make it because there's just not an insurance code or a method of payment uh, that is available for what they're trying to accomplish. And so why I, I never felt comfortable being out trying to solicit funds and donations uh, when I wasn't fully maximizing uh, the revenue streams that are available to me in the first place. So to me, it's a responsibility to our payers that are paying us not to just cost shift all of the other non-payers uh, simply because they're too difficult to deal with or our configurations are not uh, are not uh, current and cannot interface with with these commercial carriers. The other thing is, too, you're just basically on a path to obsolescence. I mean, if you're not getting ready for outcome-based contracting right now, probably over the next five to 10 years, you're going to shrink into insignificance. And if, and if you know, if, if the design is that the not-for-profit intends to fade out and, and not, um, not exist and not serve anymore um, over the next 10 years, then that should be clearly stated in the strategic plan that's collaboratively developed with the, strate- with the, with the board and the stakeholders that say that this, this community system is going to fade out into obsolescence and, and be shut down over the next 10 years. Or you get serious and you pass a strategic plan that says we're going to address this, we're going to diversify revenues, and we're going to make sure that we have the machine learning, we're going to contract with companies like ETI and make sure that we can be innovative and successful in taking risk-based contracting and standing behind our interventions, which is what payers are going to want. And they're going to flock to providers that can stand behind their services and provide at least some degree of risk corridor sharing. Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, it's about the long-term sustainability and part of that is building your moat and whether that's diversification of payer sources or diversification of marketing channels, you know, when you look at a quadrant like you're talking about where customer satisfaction is low and that's highly visible online as well as invisible throughout the word of the mouth in the community and referral partners, when another provider comes in and provides better service, then you fall into obsolescence, right? And exactly. there's such a strong need to be 
forward thinking where a lot of a lot of especially acute psych it's to me acute psych and a lot of behavioral health is in a similar position to where addiction treatment was five plus years ago where there was just so much demand and so little supply that you could get away with anything and now psych behavioral is really you know facing the same crisis of of identity and realizing there's a lot more competition out there and that the way it was isn't going to change you know the market can be cruel i mean you know you just look at look at look at what we're where our shopping behaviors are as customers. I mean, we tend to want a little bit of a double standard, to be honest with you, is what I'm seeing in healthcare. And that is, um, I'm going to treat my patients the way I want to treat my patients. Um, but yet when it comes to me being out there trying to access retail types of services, uh, I will tolerate zero dissatisfaction. I will nail you on Yelp and I will, you know, move my business very quickly. But yet when it comes to my business, I would like you to be giving me accommodations and give me a break. Uh, whereas we won't give that break to anybody else. I mean, I don't know the last time uh, that I went to, I mean, I, I would say that the, the amount of time that I spend in a grocery store now or, or shopping is gone is probably down 90% because I have a stack of Amazon boxes on my, on my front porch. <laughs> now, that means that I am no longer going to those stores that I frequented as a loyal customer. I enjoyed the brand experience, but Amazon gave me a brand experience that blew it away. And so as soon as that happens around your practice, you know, if, if ETF uh, contracts within it, one of your competitors in your market and they employ the AI that we're using, you know, it's suddenly going to be hard to recruit. It's going to be hard to retain staff. You're not going to be able to pay as much because the other providers are going to be diversified and have more revenues coming in the door and can pay more generously. Um, and you're not going to be able to recruit because you can't afford the margin. Um, you're not going to be able to afford the marketing because you haven't participated in a group mar mar marketing purchasing subscription program um, where you can you can share the expense and, and have the same Hot, you know, very sophisticated marketing channels that a massive system of care would have, uh, but that you simply can't afford. Well, if you join the subscription model, you can. And if you don't start doing that, and that's the whole reason I started this company is because each one of these companies kind of are suspicious of the other practitioners in town and their other competitors. And so there's, it's very difficult to get network collaboration going. Mm -hmm. I'm hoping that we can sign up providers for the subscription service. They can do cost sharing. We can, we can use, uh, use our technology and leverage it uh, for, you know, AI marketing, AI marketing, employee engagement, mar uh, AI um, customer and, and, and patient engagement and outcome-based contracting advice and guidance to keep practitioners and to keep small pr practices in in place because I think that they provide a very valuable, intimate service to the community and one that shouldn't be lost, but it simply will be. I mean, look at the IGA concept, you know, the Independent Grocers Association. I've watched in these small rural communities, they used to be the central place to go get your groceries and talk to your neighbors until a superstore came in from Walmart. You know, a Walmart superstore takes out the local bakery, takes out the local pharmacist, takes out everybody because they consolidate all of those services and, and retail outlets to one giant box. And they, they are, they are, they are benefiting from such synergies in their purchasing strength and their their ability to get really sophisticated logistics software that that unless you've got agencies that come together and pool their resources you just are never going to effectively compete and that we will just all be replaced with giant systems if we're not careful yeah 
Yeah, I, I like your uh, grocery store analogy there. It makes a lot of sense. So kind of going back to the turnaround aspect of this, you know, you mentioned your four quadrants, but there's obviously mission critical KPIs in that. And then there has to be individuals who are accountable for those. You know, what are the, what do you say, like the, the top two or three that you really pull out maybe per quadrant if if you've got them? Well, I mean, you know, mission critical is, is, is pretty much to me the, the clinical quadrant. You know, uh, everything should flow from the clinical quadrant because that's what we're here for. Uh, our product is clinical care. Uh, however, you can't focus on that unless you have adequate financial resources. You can't focus on that if you're breaking the law and committing fraud because it's just it's just going to be a matter of time before you're shut, investigated and shut down. Uh, you can't do you can't provide excellent patient care if your employees are unhappy or if it's a difficult to recruit or retain employees. So the whole mission is about providing clinical care that's effective and changes people's lives. It's whether or not we've got this this, this design behind us that's sophisticated and sustainable enough to provide a, a very solid foundational platform for us to fulfill our mission. I mean, we all got into this line of work uh, to serve our communities and to to change people's lives for the better. Um, and so, you know, it just makes sense for us to, to all start with that in, in mind um, and, and, and go back to our, our earliest idealistic roots of, you know, why did I become an instructor for special ed in the first place? Well, I wanted to make a difference in children's lives. And so did I want to fill out paperwork all day? Well, no. Did, did I want to deal with, with committee meetings and all that all day? Well, no. Well, my design actually eliminates those things. The committee meetings and all that is, are, are completely eliminated and streamlined and everything's automated and, and things are able to be done so that the company actually can focus on its core DNA, which is service to the community and improvement and addressing some of the most complicated challenges of the diagnostic clusters that we, that we treat. So you mentioned, for example, eliminating committee meetings, you know, and you've done a, a number of turnarounds here. Is there, are there any other things that you saw as a commonality, something that when you go in, like here are the first three, four things I look at and usually streamline or operationalize? You know, it's, it's very similar to, to if, if you were to just, you know, come up on a, some type of horrific situation where somebody's just been hit by a car, you know, and they're laying in the street and you're the first responder that's there. What are you going to do? You know, you're, if the person is laying there, and it looks like that they're, you know, they're conscious and they're talking to you, but they're bleeding horribly. And I don't mean to make light of this, but you're not going to ask them if they, you know, how do you feel about your education? How do you feel about your, your hairstyle? Do you, do you, you know, how's your life going? I mean, really, there are much more pressing, urgent issues for them to face, like stopping the bleeding. So you need to put a tourniquet on the leg. You, then, then, then we've got to get them stabilized, get them to where we can move them safely, get them to a hospital, get them treatment. Then you go into rehab. So there's all these steps before we go back to any, you know, are you okay with your life and your general trajectory? trajectory in your journey. And a lot of times what I found in turnarounds is that people don't know what, how to prioritize the biggest, most existential threats that are looming most quickly for the company. So, uh, and a lot of times that's a result of some type of anxiety and denial about the threats in the first place, because it's almost easier to ignore it. You know, I mean, uh, it's, it's funny, but in one of the, it's a funny, it's funny, but it's not funny. Wasn't funny at the time when uh, I had just got the financials for one of the companies that I'd worked with, and we had we had to restate the prior quarter uh, because they discovered that we'd lost, you know, not five hundred thousand, but five million in the prior quarter, <laughs> and that took our reserves down, you know, by you know sixty percent, and it made our our situation incredibly uncomfortable. 
Um, and, you know, I look uh, at the executive agenda and the first thing in, in there is a, just a full one hour discussion on um, the no smoking policy and whether or not we should buy Nicorette gum. <laughs> and, and you're going, that's that's wow. Like, OK, this is a big deal, but I can't I can't really wrap my mind around this because it feels like we are careening toward a mountain and just going to crash. And I don't think anybody's going to care about our smoking policy then. And so. That and then I think the next thing was the leave policy, and after that it was employee satisfaction. Like, and I and they were all important variables. Don't get me wrong; it just wasn't the biggest existential threat we faced. And so a lot of times it may seem silly to 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 somebody on the outside, but when you're the inside, uh, it can be disorienting. I remember when I was in graduate school, I wrote a paper. Um, I was a caseworker in a little rural clinic. And I, I, my, my last, my senior year, my last project was to write a, a paper about how we do a process improvement for the company uh, that I worked for. And so I wrote this elaborate study. And then my next job was to then present it to the executive management team. I was terrified to do it. And I, I had a slide deck and I went through all this and I talked about the impact of the system of care and all this. And I spoke very broadly and I was really proud of my presentation at conclusion. And the CEO, I said, do you have any questions? The CEO raised her hand and she said, you do realize that the clinic you work in is one of 20. <laughs> I had written an entire paper on 120th of the company, but that's because every day I woke up and that was my only world. I didn't know anything else. And, and I, I had never been in meetings where we talked about the challenges of the other clinics. I wasn't, I wasn't high enough in the company, if you will, to have that type of perspective. I think it's important for everybody to have that perspective, really, regardless of where you work. But I think a product of a lot of times the turnarounds is that people are so isolated within their own little agency, within their own little community, that they don't understand the broader picture or they think the threats are somewhere else, but they're never going to come to them. And, and I think my job is to come in and say, you know, maybe they won't, but let's but but the consequences of us not being prepared are are way too high. That's why we have things like life insurance and seat belts and airbags and other types of pr protective devices, gun safeties, you know, so that you you, you it's there um, and it's there to protect you. Uh, you. A lot of times don't end up using it. Uh, I haven't used my uh, my car insurance, thank goodness, knock on wood for a long time, but I still pay it because the consequences of not having it and being involved in a car accident are too significant. And the, the same philosophy should hold true in practice management. So here's an interesting question that we come across sometimes is, you know, we'll go in and money's tight, right? Cash reserves are low, issues are happening. And so often they'll come to us kind of from a marketing perspective, right? And they'll say, hey, look, we need more admissions. And we'll go in and say, well, actually, your clinical program is, is mediocre or weak, you know, very low patient satisfaction, very low online review scores. And so we'll say, hey, we need to focus on this first you know, rather than pulling admissions into it because we're just going to kind of continue this downward spiral, which is an interesting place to be because what we're saying is, hey, what we actually have to do is not only cut costs, but then spend money on clinical care, right? Mm -hmm. And so, yes, we're on the edge and you're trying to save the company, but we're telling you to spend money on something that's not going to you know, change overnight. You know, do mm -hmm. you have uh, similar experiences to that or just advice around you know, that kind of dichotomy between, hey, we're losing money, we need to save it, but we also have to actually spend it intelligently here to save the company? You know, it's just human nature. I mean, have you ever driven in snow and you you just you 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 it's a fresh snowpack, you know, it, maybe it started snowing while you're at the office and you're driving home and you hit the brakes and your car starts to slide? 
because your wheels are locked up and you start to go toward the curb or you're certainly not in control of the vehicle anymore. Even if you're going very slowly, it can still just sort of start sliding out of control until what? Until you let your foot off the brake, right? You let your foot off the brake and the tires start to spin again. Then suddenly now you can steer and you can direct a little bit more. And I've seen people slam on their brakes and think their brain is telling them, stop, stop, stop. So the, the brain is saying when you hit the brake, when you want it to stop, but you, you, your analogy, what you're talking about is the exact analogy for what I'm talking about, which is sometimes you have to, it's counterintuitive to take your foot off the brake to regain control of the system and then hit the gas pedal a little bit, give it a little juice, you know, pull, pull the steering wheel back and regain control of it. The, the issue a lot of times is that you, you know, I think that there had, that's why sometimes the more desperate they are the more successful the turnaround can be because there's they're they're they just are they realize that everything they've tried has only made it worse and they they will trust more and and so that's unfortunate i think what we need to do is build a reputation of this is going to work we're going to walk you through this i am experimenting with providing bridge capital as well you know and and doing a little bit of a demonstration for them and saying this is what we can do with our subscription marketing model uh, we can produce this, we can plug it in, we can give you a little bit of exposure to this, we can give you a discount introductory rate for the next, you know, for the first 90 days, we can drive your variables up. And if you want to continue your subscription afterwards, you can. And we're hoping that that will get people over that mechanism, that that first fear of, um, I don't know. Well, you know, if I, if I truly believe that this shot is going to cure you, and you're not sure uh, one way or the other, then you know, with the proper protections on both sides, I can go ahead and pay for that shot. And when you get better, uh, we'll talk. Yeah, <laughs> sure, so sure. Um, uh, instead of arguing about what, what that dollar should be spent on, if I know for, for a fact, and I've done this so many times and over so many years that I can see the answer so clearly that I know that once we get past it and the money starts to flow again and the AR stops being this huge, scary issue where you're pulling money out of your own reserves and your own personal accounts to meet payroll. And that's a terrifying place to be. I mean, that that makes you really want to push your foot on the brake really hard when that's the last thing you need to do. What you need to do is hit the gas a little bit and do a little bit of investment in marketing and, and branding and, and, and your, your core DNA and, and finding out what you are what you aren't and how you distinguish yourself from everybody else. Yeah. It's an excellent point. And because at the same time, like you mentioned a little bit before, if you're looking for the commercial market, for example, there is more needed in terms of branding. There's longer decision-making cycles. There's more discernment from the potential customers or researching, mm-hmm. evaluating, but more importantly, you're starting to actually repel the people that you're not a good fit for. And that's scary, mm-hmm. especially if you're in a difficult mm-hmm. situation where they're like, well, we don't want to turn anyone away. It's like, well, actually this is, this is really what you need to do to stabilize this company because you have to focus on your core strengths, your core audiences. We actually, yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I heard the same thing. We actually saw a decreased market share when we tried to do commercial um, and mixed it with the, with the same clinics that were serving people in Medicaid. And the thing, you know, we didn't, our, our, our Medicaid clinics were beautiful and well-branded and, and clean and, and everything else and as clean as the commercial clinics. And the, they were treated with just as much dignity and respect. It was just simply uh, the uneducated stigma and fear of turning to somebody who frightens you and makes you not want to feel like that you are safe and, and that maybe I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm sick, but I'm not that sick. When in mm-hmm. fact, you really are that sick. It's just that you look different. You wear different clothes, you have different insurance. 
but it's insurmountable in many cases. You just can't get over that social that social difference. And so they'll go somewhere else, even if it's a, a lower quality of care, simply because it feels a better fit. And there's more people kind of similar to them and demographics sitting in the lobby and they can relate and feel better about where they are. So what I did at Valley is created it its own brand, Highland Spring Specialty Clinics, and uh, branded it differently. Didn't use green. Uh, Valley's primary color was green. We used primary colors like purple uh, and lavender and, and distinguished the writing and the fonts and everything else to be different and trained the employees slightly differently in the way they answered the phone the way the, the, the lobbies were set up. And we never, we never mixed the Medicaid and the commercial populations there. And, and now they're doing incredibly well. And uh, the other thing, you know, the other thing that, that I see that, that, that bothers me, and, and this may get me in a little bit of trouble, is our use of vendors. Um, some of the vendors that we use, I see, I see practices a lot of time outsourcing some of the most lucrative opportunities that they have in their business model. You know, Facebook doesn't charge you for a reason. They found other ways to monetize your participation in their product. And, and that, I mean, we allow, we have all these patients flowing through our clinics every single day and we take and we outsource pharmacy, we outsource lab, we pay lab core, we pay all these diagnostic places so much money that they're actually getting 10 times the rate that we are um, and we're giving away, you know, the, some of the most lucrative business. And we're also breaking up the clinical teams because mm. really the pharmacy team, the lab team, all that should be part of the treatment team. And when you've got it outsourced, it's incredibly hard to do that because it's incredibly hard to get the accountability. Uh, you just end up being collection sites and they load it to your electronic health record. But you don't really have that, you know, that commitment on site every single day. Like we're part of the cause. We're part of the mission. We're on the same team. So I'd like to see more uh, vertical uh, integration of our of our uh, services. Um, I'd like to see less fragmented a selection of EMRs. I'd like to see regions pick one EMR through one company like ETIA and facilitate one giant medical record conversion instead of having 12 or 20 and then having some of them go into insolvency and need bridge money or heaven forbid even fail. Um, there's a lot we can do to protect the smaller providers and also protect their egos and their brand. We don't have to be humbled into joining some uh, some network that takes over our brand and our identity and, and our culture. That isn't necessary. We can do it through a subscription and participation model that leverages uh, the strength that we all have together if we work collaboratively. That doesn't mean we still can't engage in healthy competition. Um, you know, two football teams across town can still have a really incredible rivalry, but they can still sign contracts with Nike uh, to get better deals on their uniforms together. Yeah, you talk about a lot of different stakeholders here, you know, both internally and externally. And, you know, you had mentioned to me in a previous conversation, some of the challenges you had with Valley Behavioral, for example, because you guys were heavily Medicaid and there was actually some pushback from stakeholders in the community when you started moving into the commercial market. Can you talk a little bit about the, the needs to balance the different views and perspectives of the stakeholders? Absolutely. There, you know, there's a, there's a, a there's a belief for some reason that, uh, that we're supposed to be um, almost impoverished systems of care. Um, it, it, it's almost like uh, I've been shamed before for talking about money too much when, you know, the, the, the vertical integration strategies uh, that I have developed have launched programs and paid cash for multi-million dollar program pushes that would have never been made possible through fundraising or any other types of, of, of dollars. So yeah, at the end of the day, we have to have revenue and we have to make sure that, that we have adequate resources to launch new programs. 
Um, and so we have to talk about that. Now, we're, it isn't, it, it's always secondary to our primary mission, which is, which is patient care. But I have been, I've been told in meetings by stakeholders that I'd turn my back on the indigent population. I'd forgotten my roots. I'd forgotten where I'd come from. And that could have been, that's literally the furthest thing from the truth. It's just that the funding streams are, are frequently inadequate and you have to spend so much money on compliance and IT and all that, that it bleeds your margin and you're really not able to pay adequately. And then you have recruitment problems and it cascades into a treatment problem. And then it, it compromises the integrity of the program. What we have to have is adequate cash flow so that we can make this stuff work. And nobody shames, you know, I've, I've seen, I've, I remember when I, one of my, one of the programs that I turned around, we, we were really struggling with market share. So we, we bought some billboards and we were harshly shamed for wasting money on advertising. <laughs> uh, when in fact the large healthcare systems, you know, that, that we had the hospital systems had nearly every single billboard bought up on the main highways and nobody, they, and they were all not for profit hospitals and nobody said anything about them advertising their cardio care or their emergency room care. They never, they never shamed them. So there's a double standard in healthcare and it's time for that to end. Yeah. I've never understood that. I get that a lot, obviously, because we do a lot on the marketing end. It just doesn't make sense to me. I mean, one, all of healthcare does it, like you said, major hospital systems do it constantly. But two, I mean, it's critical to your mission. Your entire mission is to educate the population and connect them to care. And how are you going to do that if you're not putting word out into the community? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we, we, we treat ourselves almost like we're some type of religion more than we are actual service entities. I mean, you know, I remember one of the markets that I worked in, there was a giant billboard of, of a very famous local coach who had had a heart attack. And uh, had been saved, uh, heroically saved uh, by one of the health systems. And, and they worked out a deal and he endorsed their hospital and had a big picture of, of him. And I laughed and thought, yeah, can you imagine a, com a community leader saying, I had a psychiatric crisis and the system of care hospitalized me, stabilized me, and I stand behind them now? I mean, the stigma is such that it would have been a career ending ad for that coach. Um, whereas you can, you can admit you can have a heart attack. Well, that's just, you know, that's just my heart, but, but not my brain, my brain's fine. So we have this weird stigma and that stigma is a distorting signal that goes throughout all of our systems of care and compromises what we really should be doing. It makes us second guess ourselves way too much. And we hide as if we're ashamed of what we do and the patients that we treat. And that's got to end. We've got to fully integrate. We're a community health system. Uh, what we've got to understand is that our identity is that we're a community health system that was born out of the behavioral health side. And, and that's actually a tremendous advantage because it's what it's, it's all I've, I've worked with primary care hospital systems to teach them behavioral health. And it's, it's just nearly impossible. The cultures are so different. I have been very successful integrating primary care into behavioral health though. And so I think we have a tremendous psychological advantage when it comes to integration of care over the primary care hospital systems and family practices that think, well, I'll just put a social worker in the clinic and call it good. <laughs> we know it's so much more complicated than that. And we are the ones that can, it's actually, and I, you know, this could be a controversial statement, but I think it's easier to bring in the primary care than it is to be, bring in the specialty services into a primary care environment. That's interesting. And so you said you've had direct experience with that. You know, when you were in, so you've implemented primary care into the the behavioral health facilities and systems that you work. When with. I left Valley, and 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 I know that they're continuing in that direction because it's a core tenant of the strategic plan and their core values. Uh, it is full diversification and full healthcare integration across all programs. So you can come into their clinics, um, and you can get. 
um, a workup, your, you can get your lab work done. You can get your blood pressure test. You know, you can get your A1C and all that and your meds filled at the pharmacy for primary care, psychiatry, everything else. And, and to me over the years, when I talked, when I had a caseload, I remember talking to, to the clients that I knew and grew to love that were super chronic and, and challenged with, with psychotic conditions um, and, and going through with them and saying, hey, you need to go see your doctor. And they, they would say, no, no, my doctor is a psychiatrist, you know, and I'm like, yeah, but they're not they're not checking your blood. They're not checking your health. Oh, no, no, he's my doctor. And I thought we need to educate people better that, yeah, you have a doctor, but he's a specialty or she's a specialty doctor. And what we need to do is be worried about your primary care as well. And so that that started me on this journey. Um, and, and again, you know, we uh, integrating the biggest challenge of integrating healthcare from behavioral practitioners is getting the payers to see us as, as, as primary care and not just pigeonhole us as integration, uh, as behavioral and addiction. Um, but once you get past that and you're able to, to provide some sophisticated education to the payers, they welcome you into the mix because they're being held accountable as well. You know, Valley was just recognized by Molina as being a critical player, uh, in, in the comprehensive integrated care plans for those with multi-conditions uh, and comorbidity. And that's a huge deal. Uh, I think it's a huge deal in many ways. It's a huge compliment and, uh, and tip of the hat to what the teams, the clinical teams have accomplished at Valley. But it's also an amazing step forward and, and forward thinking for Molina to start recognizing behavioral health practitioners in the network and holding them up as just as valuable as everybody else. And that really hasn't happened before. And so that's exciting. I mean, they've got a series of podcasts out about it where they've interviewed Molina executives and it's just the very, very beginning of it. But I think everybody needs to be moving in that direction and letting the, the ACOs know that they're there and they're a critical part of treatment and they need to be cultivated and grown and invested in. Well, I think the payers have realized this in some of the conversations I've had where there's so much cost savings, honestly, for them, right? When you're combining pharmacy, medical and behavioral all in one place. Yep. So I think they're actually really looking for that. You're right. I think before they didn't, but now they're starting to be a trend towards it. They're looking for it, but they're not finding it. And yes. I'm hoping we can start developing our providers to where they raise their hand and said, yeah, you know, I can sign any of those contracts. I know exactly what you're talking about. I've been through an educational platform and I have a subscription service that's going to be able to handle all the sophistication that you need from me. Oh, sure. We're actually going to have someone from Walmart on the show because we got Walmarts, you know, building out that integrated care model in Georgia. Yeah. Super interesting. Something I kind of want to uh, go back to is the stakeholder component of it. But then you had an interesting theory that, you know, because a hospital system, a behavioral health system is nonprofit, that there's a tension between, you know, the no money, no mission kind of mantra that we hear and then becoming successful and then people wanting to, again, rest on their laurels and go back to just like a, a Medicaid model, for example. Do you want right. to expound upon that a little bit? Yeah. I mean, what I've seen is that the it, it's kind of like Bondo on a car. If you've got rust on a fender, you don't want to replace the fender. You just take Bondo and fill it, fill the holes. And a lot of times uh, the more lucrative lines of business that we have that are easier to get, and we don't have a lot, have to fight through a lot of denials and appeals and, and, and complicated processes for pre-auth. Um, that we tend to gravitate toward those easier models and, and bring in the money. And then if our physician medical teams or nursing teams or intake teams are not coding properly or we're not sufficiently contracted to where they can cover their costs, we just cost shift into those funding streams. And, and as long as it's the net, you know, net, net, at the end of the day, it's profitable. 
A lot of times not-for-profit board members will be good with that and the CEO's good with it and everybody just kind of goes back to their to their respective corners. And I think uh, there needs to be a, a true reset in the strategic plan. At the strategic plan level, uh, sitting with the board and with the leadership and officers of the company and saying is, you know, what is our core value around this? Um, do you think that if other funding streams are covering uh, and, and oxygenating, if you will, struggling business models with cash, that we should work on those struggling business models or just leave them alone to be subsidized uh, by these other funding streams and 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 get people on the record as saying, no, actually, that doesn't make sense because we could use those money, those dollars for infrastructure upgrades or um, more competitive pay. And um, and once once that is established as a central tenet of the strategic plan moving forward is incorporated into senior level um, compensation and evaluation plans. That's that's what's going to drive the whole thing forward. You know, uh, the vision of the board at Valley uh, and and them realizing and recognizing the difference between short term planning and long term planning um, has is made all the difference in the future of Valley. And Valley is going to be a very competitive entity that's going to grow, um, I believe, into a national force over the next 10 to 20 years because of that leadership. If they can sustain that same board visionary leadership. Um you know, you, that that takes my, that takes an intentional purpose in, in the way you recruit and replace board members over time. So you don't have drift and, and you're constantly revisiting your, your strategic plan. Um, but if, as long as you're mindful and consistent in the way you bring in new board members and recruit new board members, you can keep the direction of the company the way it needs to go and not be uh, changing course every four or five years. Yeah, well, I think you hit the the nail on the head right there with you know potentially expand to a national brand. I mean, at the end of the day, the mission is about access to care, removing obstacles to care, and if you can find ways to improve revenue, you know, especially with a nonprofit, well, that's fantastic because then you can use that ex- to expand your mission, right, and to improve services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for me, I've always found that tension a little bit odd because if you have more money, well, then you can do more things that are going to serve patients better. So, why why is it a concern? <laughs> Well, yeah, that's and that's where that religion, it's almost a religious element of what we do where we'll stick to a particular curriculum when the payers have rejected that curriculum and said, we're not going to pay for that or we're going to pay deeply discounted rates for that strategy. And we say, well, we're going to fundraise our way through that then. Um, well, now you're, 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 you're sticking to, uh, you know, a course dogmatically against payer, payers that are are motivated really to keep people in lower cost levels of care. So their their medical practitioners and research teams are trying to say, okay, what are the interventions that are delivered that keep these folks out of these higher cost levels of care? And if you're over there providing one of those services that they found is obsolete and you insist on sticking with it because you're stuck to it like it's some religious dogma, then you're going to have to fundraise your way through um, and potentially face obsolescence and irrelevancy later on. Sure, sure. So really appreciate all the information, Gary. I mean, I love the experience and you're one of my favorite people I've talked to in terms of the turnarounds and operations. Thanks. Um, Thanks. Absolutely. You know, if someone wants to get a hold of you or, you know, learn more about what Italia is doing, you know, how do they get in touch with you? You know, I got really, I got really uh, creative with my website. It's, it's my first and last name.com. <laughs> <laughs> and you know why I did that is because my last name is so unique. I figured nobody had registered it and I was right. So it's Gary Larsonair.com. Go there, find, you know, click on the services page, fill out a, a, a deal. Let me get in touch with you. I'm going to give you a free assessment and consult. We're going to talk about what challenges you're faced with and, and some of the ideas you may have. 
if we go from that and we want to do a, a face-to-face interview, we can, we can talk a little bit more face-to-face. I can tour the facilities, interview for some of the staff and come up with a preliminary plan for you. I'm happy to do that. Uh, I got into this field uh, for personal reasons, family reasons, and uh, my passion is yet to be exhausted and improving it and making it better. So talking about it and working with other practitioners is my passion. Uh, I, I'm not doing this uh, exclusively for the money. I, I consider it to be a healthy method of finance for for my family and the things that I love to do. Uh, but ultimately it's a passion of love uh, and one that I wouldn't trade for anything. Well, happy to have you in the business and still supporting everyone else as you work through this. To all our listeners out there, this is the Recovery Executive Podcast. I appreciate you guys listening, tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for your time.